welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good morning to those of you in Asia. Thanks for getting up and having your morning coffee with us. Uh, good evening to those of you on the East Coast, and good afternoon to those of you on the West Coast. Um, I'm Steve Vorlins, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled to moderate today's program, which we've called High Stakes on the High Seas, the South China Sea under President Biden, which I think is a great title. Um, in fact, I should thank Heine Guo, Bernice Xu, and Jason Togut, who have put together uh, this outstanding panel of experts for the first time where we have three countries represented on the panel and we have three extraordinary experts, uh, all of whom we know very well. Uh, I won't spend a lot of time with an introduction, but just to say that just before the call started, we were talking about how long the South China Sea has been a major issue in U.S.-China relations. And thinking back to when it reached uh, President Obama's desk at the beginning of his first term, and I remember talking with the, the Chinese government at, this at that point and saying, this will bleed over into other issues. It will create a mistrust and a question of whether China um, is a responsible stakeholder in the international system. And now that we still are doing programs, in fact, the issue, if anything, has deteriorated over that time. But that's the intro. We've got three, if I gave the full bios of our three panelists, um, we wouldn't have time for, for the discussion. But we've got Yen Yen, um, who is the director of the Research Center of Oceans, Law and Policy, at the National Institute for the South China Sea Studies. She is a member of our Track to the Dialogue, which uh, our Maritime Dialogue, which we, the National Committee, hold with the National Institute for South China Sea Studies um, and is a very productive participant in that. So welcome. Um, Richard Haydarian, who is a professional chair, a professor professorial chairholder in geopolitics at the Polytechnique University of the Philippines um, and is really one of the le leading spokespeople in the Philippines on the South China Sea. And we have um, you know, been thrilled to have him uh, joining us previous to this and now joining us in this dialogue. And last is Isaac Carden who is an assistant professor in the Strategic and Operational Research Department at the U.S. Naval War College. Um, he is also a member of the Track 2 Dialogue, which I made reference to, and the National Committee's Public in Intellectuals Program, which is designed to do exactly what Isaac is doing today, which is take the expertise that one gets from one's teachings, one re one's research, and talk to the public about it, which is exactly uh, what Isaac is doing today. We'll start with Yen Yen, we'll go to Richard, then we'll go to Isaac. Uh, each will talk about seven minutes, then I'll ask some questions. We've already got some terrific questions from the audience. 
but you should feel free to uh, click on the Q&A uh, icon at the bottom of your screen and ask uh, any question which you would like. We'll go to around uh, 9.15, uh, PM Eastern Daylight Time. But Yan Yan, great to see you. You think you were telling us things are good in Haiko. So please kick it off. Thank you, Mrs. Um, Orleans. Um, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank the organizers for uh, giving me the chance to speak. And uh, I'm always happy to talk about the South China Sea. And I think the communication is very important, uh, e even especially during times of uh, the pandemic that we cannot meet each other very often. So um, I'm, I'm really uh, glad that I can talk here today. Well, within just seven minutes, I'm thinking maybe I can uh, share with you some of my observations of the current situation in the South China Sea, and then we can save some time for the discussion. Well, um, as the first speaker, I would like to say that uh, from my personal point of view, I think the South China Sea current uh, in this year, 2021, is, uh, is, is rather stable. It's, it's quite uh, peaceful uh, compared to last year. Uh, and because the South China Sea issue in essence is a dispute on the territorial sovereignty and the maritime jurisdiction uh, issue between China and the other upclement states in the South China Sea over those islands, reefs, and features in the, uh, in the Spratlys. And uh, it, is, uh, it is the, uh, the, the South China Sea covers the, the broadest contested waters in any disputes elsewhere in the world. And that's why it's the most complicated maritime dispute um, in the whole world. Um, among coastal states, well, this year, we see that there are tensions, but also there are cooperations. Well, tensions are like, uh, let me give you three examples. The first one is the, uh, the uh, Western Reef incidents, not, not incident, events issue, uh, which has been uh, lasting for, I think, at least two or three months um, earlier this year. Uh, well, I think the fishing vessels of China at the reef, the Western Reef, uh, were sheltering from the bad weather and has no plan to stay there permanently. And we can see it from now that they have already all left. So uh, uh, it's my, uh, my, 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 I, I do understand the South China Sea climate states are very sensitive about China's behavior in the South China Sea. Uh, but uh, it's just never China's intention to occupy new features in the Spratlys. And so I think that heightened attention is not helpful to the peace and stability in South China Sea. So that's about the recent reef uh, event. And also a more recent thing is about uh, Malaysia's accusation of China's uh, uh, military planes, uh, 16 transportation military airplanes flying uh, through its airspace and, and the FIR and, uh, and did not respond to this, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's con uh, control. Uh, uh, control. Uh, and I think that um, regarding to this issue, I think there are several uh, legal problems of uh, Malaysia's accusation, because like, uh, first, ex uh, first of all, the uh, boundary of the EEZ claim by Malaysia in the South China Sea actually, is actually not clear. Uh, so I personally don't know where the, uh, the claim boundary is because they have not yet published the, uh, their uh, territorial baseline. And, and thus you don't know where the boundary of the EEZ is. And also uh, the flight information region, the FIR, uh, by the ICAO does not affect the flight and exercise of military air aircraft. The ICAO actually uh, has not made any mandatory, mandatory regulations on the response uh, of military aircraft to the coastal states in the FAR. And thus I don't think that China 
uh, I don't think that China uh, violated any international law rules or and regulations. And I think uh, uh, I think Malaysia is pretty sensitive about this uh, this thing, but uh, I don't think much has changed. Uh, and it's not a big deal, honestly. And also regarding to uh, Chinese Coast Guard law, which has been entering into force since this uh, February, uh, four months has passed. And I, I see that the Chinese Coast Guard's operations and activities in the South China Sea has not changed um, at all. So uh, the, the Coast Guard, the, uh, the Coast Guard law itself, it's like uh, the Chinese Coast Guard is actually both an administrative law enforcement agency and as well as an armed force. And I think the provisions of the Coast Guard law regarding the use of force and use of police equipments and weapons um, neither violate rules of international law nor exceed current state practice. So basically it's the same as the, uh, what the US Coast Guard do and the, the Australia Coast Guard and the Philippines Coast Guard that they're both administrative uh, uh, law enforcement agency as well as an armed force. So it's just, it's just, I think nothing illegal there. And also Chinese Coast Guard's operations does not change uh, now in the South China Sea. Also we see, uh, besides these tensions, I also see uh, many maritime cooperations among coastal states in the region. Like for example, in this um, April, the Indonesia's, uh, Indonesia's uh, uh, submarine sank uh, to the depths of more than 800 meters. It's a tragedy that uh, more than 50 people died on board. So uh, China also sent our military vessels to help lifting these uh, 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 help lifting this uh, uh, submarine. And I think there's a very good military cooperation between China and Indonesia Navy. And also uh, China and Vietnam. Um, there has been the, uh, uh, the uh, joint patrol in the uh, Tonkin Gulf, in the Beibu Gulf, uh, has uh, conducted the, uh, the, the 21 times. And this, at the end of April, I think the, uh, the the two countries conducted another joint patrol in the Kantongin Gulf, which is uh, which will continue. I think that's a good good example of uh, maritime cooperation between two states in the in the South China Sea, and also uh, uh, between China and the Philippines. I think the sixth bilateral uh, consultation mechanism meeting has been conducted uh, earlier in May, in May twenty or twenty first. And, and and the two countries continue to talk about the South China Sea on this uh, bilateral platform. Um, that's among the coastal states and about the, uh, the, the uh, extra regional powers like the United States or European countries, I would like to say that I think the US um, South China's policy is, uh, uh, is, uh, is consistent of the uh, Biden administration and, and, and its previous government. I think that, um, uh, the United States have already taken sides many several years ago in the South China of the South China Sea issue, and it continues in the Biden administration. And also, uh, it is uh, the Biden administration has, has conducted more military presence uh, in the region in the South China Sea than the previous administration, and that's what I see. Uh, so far. Uh, what is worth mentioning is about the uh, Alaska dialogue, the, uh, the first face-to-face -face, uh, uh, encounter between China and Biden administrations, uh, the top diplomats in Alaska in, in March. I think one interesting thing is that the South China Sea is not, uh, does not rank top or maybe top three issue during that dialogue. It's, they, they didn't even touch 
uh, a lot about the South China Sea. Maybe the trade war and everything else are, are have a higher uh, level of, of, of discussion between the two top uh, diplomats. But South China Sea is not a big issue, the biggest issue there. And uh, um, also I see other uh, EU countries uh, involved more in the South China Sea and they uh, like the Britain, France, Germany all send their warships transpassing the South China Sea, and also they uh, they submitted some statements when when incidents or issues happen um, in the South China Sea to the UN. So I see more interventions and involvement involvement in of the EU countries in the South China Sea. And finally, I'd like to talk a little bit about the CRC negotiation because it's it's the uh, the uh, very important uh, rules that uh, the, the the regional countries are togethering together uh, together are uh, formulating the rules um, in and it, it continues uh, on June the seventh. I think the nineteen senior officials meeting uh, were held in Chongqing. So it's uh, it's a breakthrough that during the pandemic, uh, the regional countries foreign uh, the diplomats fly to China to Chongqing and have the face-to-face -face meetings with each other. Uh, that's the uh, senior officials meeting. And also uh, earlier this month, uh, the 20 on the 24th, the fifth um, video meeting of the working groups of the CRC negotiation was conducted. So I think it's still ongoing, although we missed the, uh, the original goal of reaching it uh, at the end of 2021. Maybe we will miss it, but I think that it's, it's okay. not going to happen during the pandemic. But but yeah. but it's still happening. Yep. Yes, great. Okay, um, Richard from the Philippine point of view. Thank you, Yan Yan. Thank you very much. Uh, good evening and good morning, depending on where you come from. Uh, thank you very much again uh, to Heine, Steve, and everyone for inviting me here. I mean, my experience tends to be dealing with our Chinese or American counterparts quite separately. I mean. I was in Hainan just in December 2019, and then throughout the pandemic, we still had some uh, talks with friends in DC, but this is always good when all of us come together, I think from ASEAN, China, and US to have this kind of dialogue. So I really appreciate uh, this opportunity. Uh, I mean, I have extensively written on South China, so I have lost count of how many articles I've written on that, but I'll try to keep my points uh, brief uh, and focus on four important issues. Uh, over the next five to seven minutes. And then hopefully in the question and answer, we can have more fiery discussion. Uh, the first thing is, um, well, uh, our friends in China tend to always characterize the South China dispute as a generally stable situation. I, I tend to hear that term over and over again. My contention, however, is that uh, what we have is more like a tinderbox or perhaps a lull before the storm. Uh, you know, Otto von Bismarck, the, the great German chancellor, uh, just decades before the First World War said that he's worried about some damn foolish thing happening in the Balkans and creating the next global conflict. And if you look at the South China in many ways, it's like the Balkans of the late 19th century, right? Uh, no one wants war, right? Everyone has an interest in peace and prosperity in the region, including our friends in China. And yet everyone is gradually, if not decisively, sleepwalking towards conflict. I mean, this is a very, very troubling situation. There's nothing new with the South China Sea uh, disputes. They stretch back to a century at least. Uh, but in the past decade, we have been moving in a very, very dangerous direction. And I think part of the culpability rests with China. Again, no one is innocent. 
I would say that my own country, the Philippines, was quite an aggressive claimant in the 1970s. The former Filipino dictator Marcos, in fact, created the first modern airstrip in the Spratlys, and then everyone else uh, tried to copy us, uh, albeit on en masse and on different scale. Uh, but the reality is that in the past decade, China has significantly changed the facts on the ground in ways that has really escalated uh, the tensions. Uh, I think if you look at China's domination strategy in the South China Sea, we're really looking at four stages. The first stage was the introduction of the Sancha City Administrative Prefecture in 2012, and then the reclamation activity that started by December of 2013. So within a very short span of time, we saw China dramatically changing the facts on the ground through to geoengineering on steroids, right? And it seems that Obama administration was really caught off guard. The second stage was really the militarization of these artificially created islands uh, or land fissures in the Spratlys, in the Woody Island, among others. We saw the deployment of surface-to-air missiles, electronic jamming equipment, and of course, the positioning of the PLA forces and establishment of multi-kilometer long airstrips in multiple areas, in the, uh, including the Fire Cross, Mischief Reef, and of course, in the Woody Island area in the north. Uh, but the third phase I would contend is what I call the militiaization of the disputes. And if you look at the Whitson Reef incident or standoff earlier this year, if you look at the Reed Bank incident in 2019, when a suspected Chinese militia sank and almost drowned 22 Filipino fishermen in a contested energy-rich area in the Reed Bank, we're seeing that the Chinese militia forces are increasingly at the very forefront of what you call the Chinese gray zone strategy. So we're still not talking about gray hall or conventional naval forces getting involved directly, although of course they're always just over the horizon. Uh, but it's also troubling to see that the Chinese Coast Guard, which is now uh, an extension of the PLA, they have been actually incorporated in the PLA uh, command and control structure. So they're not really, really Whitehall. They're also increasingly Greyhall. Um, we see that the Coast Guard and the militia forces of China are getting more and more involved. And that raises a lot of worries because uh, fishermen come militia forces are not professionals. They do not uh, follow the same kind of training and protocols that nor normal naval forces follow. And with the United States uh, since 2019 treating these militia forces as an extension of the PLA Navy, you can see that you know, the stars are aligning for, for potentially dangerous accidents in the high seas that could rapidly escalate into a, into a much more troubling situation. right? And that brings me to the second uh, point. The second point is, of course, ideally, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea should be the way forward in managing and hopefully resolving the disputes, because what we want is rule of law, not rule of jungle. Uh, the problem, of course, here is that all superpowers are exceptional in a sense that they take ex exception to following international law. The United States has signed the UNCLOS, let's get the facts right, but has not ratified it, thanks to our some of our friends in, in the Senate, uh, who we know who they are. But the US Navy actually observes broadly on clause as a matter of customary international law. The problem with China is the obverse. They have ratified the on clause, but whether they comply with the relevant provisions of the on clause, it's, it's a big question, especially in light of the 2016 Arbitral Tribunal Award, which are European friends, which many in ASEAN, which by the way, Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam have also invoked in recent years. Uh, maybe not as much my own president, President Duterte, for understandable reason, but let's not forget this is under Article 287, Annex 7, compulsory arbitration provisions of the UNCLOS. So regardless of what China says, 
the three nose policy of China that they feel this is a piece of trash paper. Uh, the fact of the matter is that we're talking about on plus here, right? And I think it's also quite troubling um, that, you know, over the past decade, again, this is not unique to China, but of course, China is the biggest claimant here. You know, these discussions about historic rights, right? And the fact that even the coordinates of Nine Dash Line are not clear to us, so much so that it seems it's now overlapping with Indonesian waters in the North Natuna Sea. So Indonesia, which was a neutral country, is now suddenly drawn into the South China Sea disputes because of lack of clarity on this precise coordinates of the COC, which I think later on we can talk about. But I think China's rhetoric of historic rights in the area is in many ways ethnocentric because it presupposes that China was the only real civilization in the area that has certain degree of control in the area, which is highly questionable by historical records. I mean, there is a great book called Empires of the Wind, which shows that the city-states in Indonesia and the Philippines you know, have been roaming this South China Sea for thousands of years. And let's not forget, Admiral Zhang He was actually a Muslim from potentially a Persian background, which, which is something I don't see much in, in, in Chinese propaganda. But so, so brings, which brings me to the third point, which is increasing popular nationalism, wolf warriorism, and divisions, not only between US and China, but also, and so the ASEAN clearly is very divided on these issues. They do not want to even talk about the South China Sea at all, including Cambodia. I cannot blame them. They have no direct interest, but they have a direct interest in not pissing off the Chinese, right? So I, I, I can't understand that. And ASEAN, unfortunately, is today, not in the past, that's, that's a myth, but today China is, uh, ASEAN is really led by unanimity-based decision-making, not muafarat, not consensus, and that's a recipe for paralysis. Uh, and, uh, and as far as the code of conduct negotiations are concerned, I mean, in, in many ways, it's a rabbit hole. We have been I mean, the idea of code of conduct started in 1997, 1998. I mean, it's, it's almost as old as me, right? And yet today we're still discussing new questions that arise from new answers. Like if it's gonna be legally binding, which law, whose version of UNCLOS, which provision of UNCLOS, you know, we can go on forever. So I'm not surprised that these COC negotiations are not going anywhere. That's why our contention is that better have a COC among ASEAN claimant states who actually agree with relevant provisions of UNCLOS. So if Malaysia, Philippines, and Vietnam agree with arbitration award, then just negotiate a real COC among yourselves. Then let's see what goes on with China's forces COC negotiations on the level of ASEAN is concerned. But what really worries me is that the wolf warrior diplomacy is not only among our Chinese friends, but it's also extending across the region, uh, including uh, the foreign secretary of the Philippines who went ballistic on Twitter a few weeks ago and use pretty spicy language against our Chinese counterparts, which I think was absolutely undiplomatic. And there's now a gag order on him on not to comment on that. My worry is that we're seeing more and more xenophobia and xenophobia in the region. That's not very helpful. But a lot of countries, including the Philippines, are also increasingly internally divided. So the story of Philippine foreign policy over the past five years is that the Philippines does not have a foreign policy. President Duterte says something, his defense secretary contradicts him, the foreign secretary tries to synthesize all the contradictory positions. At the end of the day, we have incoherence and increasing internal divisions within the country. And as a Filipino and Southeast Asian, I'm not very happy about that situation because the more the situation intensifies, the more you have different camps trying to divide the country rather than having coherent diplomacy. That's not really something good, especially when you're talking about countries that do not have a coherent uh, culture, strategic culture. And, and, and I think the South China Sea, unfortunately, is getting dragged more and more into domestic political positioning in ways that is not helpful for our national interests and also for regional interests. And lastly, let's go to the issue of how to deal with the, issue, uh, how to deal with the South China Sea disputes. 
again, no one is innocent. Everyone has their own share of, of, of culpability. But my contention is that China is an indispensable stakeholder as far as peace and prosperity in Asia is concerned. And by the day, China is getting more and more important to regional peace and prosperity by its sheer size and economic prosperity. But the fact of the matter is that we cannot also just sit by and allow the South China Sea to turn into a Chinese lake, right? Or China's blue national soil. Something has to be done about it. The fact of the matter is that we cannot contain China. China is just so important and so central to regional and global economy. We cannot pull off the kind of stuff that we try to pull off against the Soviet Union. But we can do what political scientist Gerald Segel very aptly called constrainment. We can constrain the more revisionist tendencies of China's foreign policy. And that could be done, I contend, through mini-lateral, not multilateral, but mini-lateral coordination among core and key ASEAN member states like Indonesia, like Vietnam, like post-Duterte Philippines or Malaysia, and the Quad and other like-minded powers who believe that no single power should dominate the South China Sea. So on that point, I will end because I can, you know, we can have more uh, spicy discussions there's, later there, on. There, and I can there's see plenty of spice. There's plenty of spice in that, which I'm sure. Much. There's plenty of spice in that, which I'm sure Yen Yen will respond to. But let's turn to Isaac for what's going on in the United States and has Biden brought anything new to the discussion? Thanks, Steve. Uh, it's an honor to be invited by the committee and, and to represent your terrific public intellectuals program. Uh, and having participated with uh, Steve and Heine, who have organized a series of uh, track two maritime dialogues with our Chinese counterparts, including my friend Yen Yen for, for many years, since 2012, I believe. Um, we really had a, had a great forum for discussion of these issues for a long time now. Um, and I think discussing these issues is never more important than it is right now, given the overall tenor of the relationships. I'm happy to do it. Uh, and of course, speaking only for myself, uh, not for the, the Navy or the US government, uh, but I will be speaking about the Biden administration's uh, approach to the South China Sea thus far and I'm going to try and briefly put it in the context of some of the emerging broader priorities and policies uh, that they've shown us in the, in the region. Um, I guess the first thing to say about it is that the, the dominant trend is continuity. Um, it, thus far in word and deed, we see uh, a lot of the same policies continued from the prior administration on China, as well as maritime security issues in East Asia, of which South China Sea is one of the most prominent ones. Um, one remarkable difference that I'll, I'll touch on uh, from prior administrations beyond the tone uh, is their prioritization of allies and partners uh, as, a, as the first order consideration when considering the relationship with China and, and the South China Sea in particular. Um, so, uh, you know, it's worth noting that this wider approach is also continuous with the last two, maybe even three administrations in some crucial uh, respects, which I'll touch on. Um, the, the substance of them has, of the current administration, the Biden administration, has showed some of the same fundamental trends that we saw moving through the last two administrations uh, since Washington has begun to reckon with a much more powerful and much more assertive uh, China, uh, dated at least from the great financial crisis onwards in terms of uh, the, the picture from Washington. Um, Biden himself has reaffirmed the previous administration's Indo-Pacific uh, framework uh, as recently as this spring, and he wrote an op-ed along with other heads of state from the Quad, 
saying that uh, we are committed to a free, open, secure, and prosperous Indo-Pacific region, again, of which the South China Sea is, is considered an integral part and is often discussed in that context. Um, Biden added on, of course, secure and prosperous to the free and open Indo-Pacific uh, uh, slogan, which bears noting originated in Japan uh, with the former Prime Minister Abe to begin with, but nonetheless was a continuation of policy. These are minor glosses on, on what's essentially an inherited reframing of U.S. global security interests that has been taking shape over, over the course of a decade or more, in which our interests are viewed as concentrated in the Asia-Pacific, as they called it at first, and now the Indo-Pacific region, essentially describing the same geography. This is a secular trend over a long period of time that each administration is, is reflecting by devoting more resources and more attention strategically to China, in particular in the region as a whole. Um, so what we see now is a mainstream US national security leadership across parties and across movements that has more thoroughly digested this shift to a frankly more adversarial posture with China uh, over this time period. And it, and it almost appears to be one of the few certainties in an otherwise pretty unpredictable Washington of late. Um, so on South China Sea policy in particular, that was sort of the broad picture of it being continuous with this Indo-Pacific rebalance, pivot, uh, you name it, this idea that you need to concentrate more American strategic attention in that region. Um, so the South China Sea is an area where US and Chinese interests uh, and the interpretations of the law and any number of other issues really come to sort of direct, uh, I won't say conflict, but they're certainly in tension with one another across a number of different dimensions, security as well as economic. Uh, and it may be second only to Taiwan in terms of the fundamental strategic tensions that the South China Sea manifests and, and reflects in the bilateral relationship. Um, so the most visible of these are the security interests that the United States has been talking about at least since uh, Hillary Clinton visited the uh, ASEAN Regional Forum in Hanoi in August 2010. Um, and they've tended to be associated with the Freedom of Navigation Program, the FON program. Uh, and I suppose the other side of that security coin is a lot of people are very familiar with the, with the man-made island bases uh, that Richard spoke about as well. And, and these, these are worth looking at, but I wanna take us a, a little bit beyond those in a moment. But I guess on that count, it's worth noting that the Freedom of Navigation Program, which has been in existence for a long time, but was really rejuvenated in 2015, uh, has been on a very regular tempo, uh, in fact, a, an increasing tempo uh, since that time, something on the order of 40 since the program resumed in October 2015. Uh, and now we're on something like a twice quarterly tempo. Um, but the thing to emphasize with these operations is that they are minor operations in a much broader operational picture that we've seen from the United States Navy and one that has changed more significantly over time, I would say, than the, the relatively minor operations uh, that are most visible in the media and in and diplomatic rhetoric. For example, just this month, the, the United the USS Ronald Reagan Carrier Strike Group, which is not just the carrier, it's, it's many, many aircraft, destroyers, cruisers, submarines, et cetera, it's been conducting maritime security operations in the South China Sea all month, uh, including maritime strike exercises, coordinated tactical training between surface and air units, exercising with partners and allies, et cetera, um, and describing these carrier operations in the South China Sea as part of the US Navy's routine presence in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and I'd throw in there a much more routinized transit of the Taiwan Strait and a variety of other operational ways that 
this administration has continued a longstanding series of sort of incremental upgrades in terms of US presence uh, in the region. Uh, on that other kind of hot button security issue, the, the PRC's man-made bases in the Spratleys, um, they are operational in a very significant way now, and we've observed them being used for, for resupply and logistics for various Chinese vessels, official and uh, pseudo-official in the form of the, the militia. Um, and I think the, the key thing to take away from these in terms of the security dynamics is not so much between China and the US. This is an entirely separate discussion about what are the what are sort of the tactical implications of having these Chinese installations there, which are not trivial. But I think we don't really know how that plays out. But what we do understand right now, what the meaningful security consequences are, uh, they're for the regional states. China, by virtue of being able to operate its much upgraded Coast Guard uh, and fishing fleet and, and a pretty uh, diverse range of, of maritime law enforcement actors, including the PLA Navy, is able to operate much, much more effectively, have much greater maritime domain awareness, you call it, but be able to surveil the, the entire South China Sea region, not just the Spratleys where those new bases are, but also further up north in the Paracels where, where development has continued to pace. It's, it's some very significant capacity now to sustain forces uh, essentially at all times, not in all areas at every moment, moment, but covering the expanse of the South China Sea. And that's relatively new. Operating at scale and with consistency in the southern tier of the South China Sea was not part of the PRC's repertoire only a couple of years ago. But over, over the last five or six years, we've seen by virtue of use of those uh, man-made bases in particular, but also other factors, a much more sustained, much more regular, much more routine uh, presence of PRC law enforcement, PRC fishing vessels, PRC militia vessels all around the areas uh, on the side of my head here and behind my shoulders, the southern tier of the, uh, of the South China Sea. Um, so another set of dynamics um, that we see uh, revolve around economic interests and conflicting economic interests that the US perceives, that China perceives, and that the other regional states do. I'll, I'll try and focus on where the Biden administration is, is putting their chips. Uh, and I think it's notable that the photo advertising, uh, the flyer advertising this session showed two fishing boats and a cargo ship off in the distance. And I think that's appropriate in a sense that economic issues have come to the fore repeatedly and they tend to be the issues that uh, kind of spark broader discussions. They certainly are the ones that implicate individual people and their well-being most directly. Um, and an interesting thing that's happened over the course of the, not just the Biden administration, but the prior administration as well, is an increasing rhetorical concern, at least for the economic interests of claimant states. Um, the previous administration emphasized all the value of trade transiting the South China Sea, the, the oil and gas in particular, uh, the fishing grounds, the employment, et cetera, and made a very, very deliberate and specific effort to say, we are concerned about the resource endowments, the rights to resources, oil and gas fisheries of all the claimant states in the South China Sea. And that was the first time that that had really appeared in US messaging. This was back in July, 2020. There's a whole series of State Department statements as well as uh, I believe Assistant Secretary Stilwell did a very long interview. There was a note verbal to the UN. The US kind of shifted its posture and was very, very specific about a lot of these economic issues in a way that we hadn't seen to include uh, levying sanctions on a number of Chinese firms that have been involved in 
uh, land reclamation and other projects uh, involving militarization of the South China Sea features. And on that count as well, that's a sanction regime that was inherited by the current administration. It's been kept largely intact. And in fact, it's been expanded. Uh, we had the, the original 24 firms was expanded to 31 by the end of the last administration. And I believe we're at 59 total. They're not just for South China Sea activities. It's largely for um, uh, involvement with PLA or PLA affiliated uh, firms and organizations. But nonetheless, big time firms like China National Offshore Oil Company uh, as well as others are, are on this list. Um, and this is, an, this is an interesting policy direction that requires, as I'll get to, cooperation and coordination with allies. Uh, and I think that ends up being really the, the most significant um, change or, or different trajectory that we're seeing. Okay. Um, Steve, if you want me to, to say a few words on allies and partners, I'm happy to do that. Uh, otherwise, no, was, I, I was actually going to my first question to you was going to be on allies and partners. I, yeah, so talk about it, but also talk about it in the context of uh, these sanctions. So the Biden administration gives a lot of uh, you know, uses a lot of words about allies and partners. These sanctions are unilateral. I have not seen the British, the French, the Italian, the Japanese, the South Koreans join with us. So what's going on here? Is this smart policy? Uh, well, I, I will punt on the last question. As far as what's going on here, I think we haven't seen them bite yet. You're right. And they certainly, they are executed by an executive order rather than uh, various other modalities that they might do it. But I think nonetheless, the administration is counting on allied support on this. And so I think it's probably too soon to say whether or not the policy is, is having any effects there. But what we have seen, at least from allies and partners specific to the South China Sea and specific to these security dynamics, is you really do see a lot more uh, gray hold vessels from European and other extra regional states that are now both operating in the South China Sea and in the Taiwan Strait and in the Western Pacific and talking about it a lot in ways that have not made China particularly happy. Just a few that are, are worth noting, the United Kingdom probably most significantly is deploying its new carrier strike group to operate in the South China Sea. They're on their way there and they're gonna be stopping to exercise with the Indians, which for a new type of exercise, Steve and I were just talking about the South Koreans now joining a US-Australia exercise that has a big China theme to it. We see the French uh, deploying nuclear submarines to the region, talking, doing Taiwan Straits transits, we saw the Australians and the Germans in fact, now deploying naval vessels and pronouncing their national interest in freedom of navigation in the South China Sea particularly. So again, these are these are things that all started to percolate actually before the last administration. So again, at least the two administration kind of carryover of these being things that the United States is looking for its allies and partners to do. Um, and yeah, Yen Yen mentioned this as something that that has been troubling for uh, Beijing in no uncertain terms. I feel Yen Yen, I think both Richard and, and Isaac were kind of pretty tough on China. Is there anything, before I start getting to specific um, questions, is there anything you want? I, I should give you time for rebuttal. Well, thank you, uh, Chair. Well, I do agree with Richard that uh, things are becoming more dangerous now in the South China Sea than decades ago. And I think that, uh, to be fair, I think all the claimant states uh, have conducted unilateral actions and trying to increase their um, effective, effective control over the features that have already occupied. I think that's the 
the situation here in China. And I think the uh, the uh, the uh, the China's claim in the South China Sea, and often uh, confused by uh, many. Uh, you know, many observers and, and, and both in the region and outside the region. And I think uh, one thing that I wanted to say is that uh, China's most uh, official uh, claims in the South China Sea, if you could look at the, uh, the statement published on 2016, July the 12th, I think it makes very clear that China made territorial claims to the four island groups in the South China Sea. And also uh, we have uh, internal waters, um, territorial sea and uh, contiguous zone, EDZ and continental shelf in the South China Sea. And uh, China has uh, actually made uh, very clear of its uh, claim during the uh, arbitration period 2013 to 2016 that we have published this uh, government positions and white papers and there are so many things on the website of the foreign, foreign ministry so I think that uh, we could just look them up in, on the website and I don't want to elaborate more on this and also regarding the arbitration I think that the Chinese uh, uh, position is actually quite clear and it's consistent. We think that the arbitral tribunal has made a series of mistakes regarding the jurisdiction, admissibility, and the determination, nature, and actual contents of the dispute. I don't want to go to too much details of this, but this is something I wanted to uh, talk about a little bit here. Yes. How do you respond? I, I noticed in your presentation, Yen Yen, you talked about, you know, we had the sixth meeting of this consultative committee. We had this, we're, we're meeting with the We've had meetings on the on the code of conduct. We've had meetings on this. One of the criticisms I hear, um, and one of the reasons why the Biden administration has said we don't want these meetings, we don't want these high-level uh, consultations, these regular meetings, because they don't get anywhere. The 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 goal becomes just having the meetings rather than reaching substantive. Uh, conclusions, which you can do at a much lower level. How does China respond to that? Well, I think that between China and the United States, as I already mentioned, the Alaska meeting does not when they're well, we didn't reach any like consensus or bilateral agreements. But I think the thing is different with them among the coastal states in the South China Sea. Well, Richard just now mentioned about the reed bank incidents in 2019 when the uh, uh, the Chinese fishing boat bumped into these Philippine fishermen and then make them uh, uh, in, in the water. And I think that during the meetings now, I, I saw the news that the two countries are already talking about the compensation that China should pay to the Philippines. I think that's and incidents not by purpose, I, per, I, I do believe that. So these kind of issues and incidents are have been talking about during those um, bilateral meetings. And also uh, the multilateral ones, the COCs. Well, actually we see from the restart of the COC negotiation meetings since 2013, we have achieved a lot of the milestones. We have achieved a uh, uh, draft a uh, draft of the COC and we have the, the single negotiation test of the COC. It's just that during the pandemic time, it's just difficult to push forward when, when you're using this video uh, conference thing. I think that we do achieve a lot for the past years. So I won't, yes, I, I think the contribution was there. I, I think Richard pointed out that these, these discussions started in 1997. Well, but uh, but then there was no yeah, pandemic yeah, for twenty two. <laughs> It's true that it first uh, started in 1997, and then we uh, all of the countries we stepped uh, back from the COC to the DOC, and we reached it in 2002. 
and that's the uh, the achievement you know two decades ago and then the the restart of the coc negotiation was from 2013 yes so for the past um oh. six years we've if we have much achievements through those meetings yeah um richard I, kind of the way i asked isaac is is you know is the us and japan and south korea and the nato allies and on the same page and will they act together I ask you, will the Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia, you know, the, the, the coastal states that have a dog in this fight, are they really unified? Yeah, thank you very much, Steve, for that. Let me just uh, quickly just uh, clarify on the point of the COC before I get back to you, because I think that's very important because there are a lot of misconceptions uh, around it. I mean, Absolutely, I'm always happy that we celebrate every milestone when we have a title, when we have an outline, when we have, I don't know, a few sentences under the outline. But you know, one thing that really worried me was, uh, this is two years ago, when China suddenly made new demands in the negotiations of code of conduct. Uh, one was that uh, as part of a code of conduct, potentially legally binding, there will be a veto on the prerogative of claimant states to conduct naval exercises with external powers. That was obviously rejected by multiple ASEAN countries because that meant, for instance, part of the COC means Philippines and US as treaty allies cannot do military exercises or naval exercises in the South China Sea. That was unacceptable. That kind of demand was not there. Suddenly it's popping up. What does that mean? We can make certain deductions from that. There was also a push by China. We, we see that in the draft of the negotiations that was leaked on the outline of the COC. The China was also saying that we should have some sort of a mechanism whereby no uh, energy companies from outside of the region should be involved, meaning Japanese, American companies should not be involved. So that means we'll be left essentially with Chinese technology. So, you know, when new demand suddenly came in the negotiation of COC, that, that was quite troubling for me. That, does that mean that China believes suddenly that it can tweak the COC? in ways that will further reinforce its claims. And then by the way, the COC also made it clear in the outline that maritime boundary delimitations and territorial claims will not be covered. So in the end, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder what's the point of this? Because we already have a DOC and the provisions of the DOC are quite clear. It's not legally binding, but it's quite clear you cannot do unilateral activities like what we're seeing in the past eight to nine years in the South China Sea. So my worry is that this is dialogue, not only for the sake of dialogue, this is dialogue to actually create acquiescence and a, an illusion that we're moving in the right direction. So for me, I'd rather get rid of the COC and focus on the so-called triple priority and all sorts of aggressive military maneuvers in the area and all sorts of aggressive reclamation or changing of facts in the area and also move towards some sort of mechanism of delimitation and uh, proper kinds of communications to move forward. So I think those are more priority to me than this COC that is not only a rabbit hole, but a dangerous kind of rabbit hole that is creating illusion that we're moving forward in the right direction. Uh, this is what I say since following this thing for the past 10, 15 years as a journalist, academic and policymaker. Now, going back to your question, I mean, I, I kind of ended on that point because I knew that Isaac is gonna pick on that. Uh, I think we should, just dispense with the illusion that ASEAN is going to get its act together as a collective body of 10 countries, right? Because first of all, the divergence of interests and perception threats are very, very different. And I cannot blame the Cambodians or people in Laos or Myanmar not caring about the South China Sea and not willing to risk their interest. The same way they cannot expect the Philippines to risk its, its relationship with China over the Mekong River, for instance. So I accept that. 
But the fact of the matter is that there are certain key members in the ASEAN, let's just call them the pivot state or fulcrum state, like Indonesia, Vietnam, Malaysia, and the Philippines, you know, who have are more like-minded, who have some legitimate concerns about what's happening in the South China Sea, who share similar views perhaps on the on clause and how we should move forward. And I think these are the countries that the Biden administration should should reach out to on a minilateral basis. And for those who say that minilateralism comes at the expense of ASEAN multilateralism, that's nonsense. I believe that we have to first accept that ASEAN centrality is a myth, right? The ASEAN uh, outlook on the Indo-Pacific is a defensive, almost pathetic kind of statement. Uh, the reality is that ASEAN cannot play an important role in the South China Sea by virtue of the fact that it's increasingly consensus-based and dominated by mediocre diplomats, right? And a bunch of despots who prioritize relations with China than their own national interests. But I think minilateral cooperation among certain key members in the ASEAN and the Quad and other powers can really move forward. And I think if this also core members of ASEAN get their act together, coordinate their, coordinate their diplomatic position, it will get China's attention. Maybe China can be successful in ensuring that ASEAN will never call a spade a spade, which has successfully happened forever. But um, I think China will pay attention when Indonesia and Philippines and Vietnam and Malaysia are suddenly saying things that China is not comfortable with. I think that's really the way forward. So let's get around this illusion of uh, ASEAN centrality and all, and really focus on a more minilateral approach towards that. On, as a Filipino, what I can say is that there has been a significant change in American policy in the South China Sea in ways that is very, I think, consequential. You know, from the Nixon to the Obama administration, uh, plausible deniability and strategic ambiguity was the name of the game as far as the South China Sea disputes were concerned. On multiple occasions, President Obama, uh, you know, falsely tried to draw a par parallel between Canadian-American border disputes and that in the South China Sea. That didn't make sense. And he was really wishy-washy about how far the Americans are willing to go to help allies like the Philippines. That changed with the statement of Pompeo in 2019, which Blinken and the Biden administration have more or less uh, you know, adopted in full, right? Which is the Philippine-US Mutual Defense Treaty covers any attack on Filipino troops, aircrafts, personnel, they're operating in the South China Sea. That came very clearly from both Pompeo and Blinken. And that has clear implications, right? Now, let's be very clear. No, no one wants war here, but this is a game of deterrence. If the alliance is pointless, you're not really deterring threats. And the more you're not deterring threats, you're creating actual threats and room for error, and you're worsening the situation. So what I'm saying is that the Nixon, Kissinger, Obama, plausible deniability approach was a big failure. And finally, we're seeing a correction in that. Now the question is, how do we tweak it? Just to end on this point, I think, Steve, the way forward is a Goldilocks approach, not too hot to provoke the Chinese. Uh, all this Cold War rhetoric, I'm not very comfortable with it. None of us are. But at the same time, it has to be just hot enough to get China's attentions and make them think twice. Because I believe China is fundamentally a rational, pragmatic actor. Yes, sometimes it goes wolf warrior. Yes, sometimes it kind of goes excessive but eventually it self-corrects. I believe in the ability of China to recalibrate. And that explains the success of China's statecraft for thousands of years. Isaac, do you agree with that statement about there was Pompeo and a significant change, a very consequential change? I saw it more as a restatement of what existing policies were. On which specific statement, Steve? 
what Richard had just referred to in terms of the mutual defense treaty and in terms oh, right, right. Of position on, uh, you know, on sovereignty in the it, on the islands in the South China Sea. I, I did not right. see a huge change. No, I, I don't think that the U.S. has reinterpreted that treaty commitment. It's always covered uh, government ships and territory under the uh, sovereignty of the Philippines. And it's important to note that the treaty text for the Philippines differs dramatically from the U.S.-Japan bilateral treaty, which talks about areas administered by Japan, thus, thus the interesting situation with the Senkaku. But I, I think that was a really key um, statement in terms of the reaction it engendered in the Philippines. I believe it was the Defense Secretary, excuse me, Secretary Lorenzana, but I may be mistaken, Richard will correct me, who after that was said was in kind of a surprise, I suppose, for the Pompeo State Department that they weren't all that receptive to it and said exactly as you did, that this is a, this is a potential hazard. This is in introducing more scope for conflict between the United States and China. We don't want to be, we don't want to be trampled in that. And I think that's, that's a, a, another longstanding tension for all the U.S. alliances but I suppose it's just more and more acute, more and more tense as China's capability increases. So I, I imagine we're gonna we're gonna have that type of dynamic in certainly the U.S.-Philippine relationship, and I imagine uh, with other allies. And I think tending tending that garden, I think, is the way that the administration has talked about it. That's grown uh, overgrown or has been weeded too aggressively, or whatever metaphor you want to use, uh, has been a big priority. So I'd expect to see, especially on the the U.S. Philippines uh, status of forces agreements and EDCA and all, all these major things that are just sort of in suspended animation. I expect there'll be a lot of energy on that. Um, when you think about this from a military perspective, the ability to operate out of the Philippines for the United States is really very, very substantial. Uh, certainly to, to be able to defend the Philippines in particular, but in a variety of scenarios to include uh, scenarios in which uh, Taiwan is the object. So yeah. I think that there's another reason why the allies and partner stuff has been really pushed to the fore. There aren't a lot of uh, operational plans that don't have the U.S. flying out of Japanese bases. Uh, certainly would like to be operating out of a variety of places in the Philippines. Um, and to, to hedge against that, we also see a much more significant uh, deployment out to Guam with Australia and other areas beyond the first island chain where, okay. where we'd yeah. expect to see. Steve, can I just come in? Because I keep on hearing that idea that this is just rephrasing. I, I beg to disagree. If you really go uh, to the policy of Nixon to Obama, well, first of all, it was always, uh, the term was generic, in the Pacific. The word South China Sea was not specified, that the mutual defense treaty will be relevant in the case of South China Sea. In fact, Pompeo exactly said that. He said, we're making it clear, we're talking about the South China Sea. Second, it was never mentioned so publicly, because in diplomacy, timing and setting and who says what matters. Maybe some random obscure bureaucrats in the State Department were saying that, but who cares, right? But when your Secretary of State is saying that openly in a press conference, right, covered by the world, that matters. But third, very importantly, uh, sorry, I'm really emphatically emphasizing that because I keep on hearing this is nothing just a reference. Third, uh, in 2019, after the Reed Bank incident, Sung Kim, the former ambassador to the Philippines, now envoy to North Korea, I think ambassador in Indonesia, great guy, um, you know, he made it very clear that even gray zone threats, militia attacks against the Philippines could be potentially covered by the mutual defense treaty. And in accordance to that, 
Philippines and U.S. now are trying to tweak and renegotiate the terms of not only the Mutual Defense Treaty, but the Visiting Forces Agreement and ETCA in ways that deal specifically with the gray zone threat. Exactly what we did in 2001, which is we tweaked the alliance to make it more relevant to non-state actor threats, counterterrorism threats. So, so again, it may seem just a rephrasing, but actually, if you really dig in, the, the operational implications are immense. It just happens you have a president like Duterte who keeps on downplaying this. I think had we had a different president, they would have really emphasized what a big issue is. And let me tell you, no one is, no one wants war. The Philippines doesn't want war. The Philippines doesn't want to get involved in any kind of conflict with any big powers. But if you have an alliance which is so vague that it's inviting almost creeping invasion by third parties, what's the point of that? And I think that's also the context within which we have to understand this constant lambasting of the US-Philippine alliance, including from people like Secretary Lorenzana, who was a defense attache in Washington. He's not against the alliance, but his point is, what's the point of this alliance? It didn't really work in the context of South China Sea in the past. Something has to be done. So I think that, that that's the operational importance we have to look at. But just to end on this point, Duterte, nonetheless, has played an important role in hand, handicapping this alliance because the, the, the thing few people talk about is really the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement of 2014. Under that agreement, Americans were supposed to preposition weapons and, 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 and troops in two important bases, Basa Air Base next to the Scarborough Shoal and the Bautista Air Base next to Spratlys. Duterte vetoed that, but that could change under the next president in the Philippines. So that's also, that also has very important operational ramifications for the South China Sea disputes from the US-Philippine alliance standpoint. Yeah, and in a, in a prior meeting, uh, this was pre-COVID, uh, we talked about the Philippines and uh, China entering into kind of a memorandum of understanding for joint development of areas, um, you know, for energy exploitation, which, which were um, uh, disputed. What happened to that? Well, I think that um, uh, last year, uh, the government level committee and the uh, enterprise level working group has been set up. But uh, due to the uh, pandemic, I don't think that uh, the two meeting committees and the working groups have face-to-face -face discussions. And I think the biggest obstacle of the uh, joint development in the South China Sea is that both China and the Philippines have our own domestic legal issues we came across because we think that those uh, maritime areas are under our jurisdiction and the Philippines thinks that it's under their jurisdiction. So we, we do have a legal problem to come, to come across. I hope that uh, the, uh, the, we, we can push um, forward after the pandemic was, uh, is, is over and we can have the face-to-face -face, uh, meetings and discussions on that. Don't countries and companies all the time put aside legal disputes and say, okay, will develop this piece of property or this whatever, and will split the revenue however you decide? What, what's, you know, it's really a political, not a legal issue, isn't it? No, there are many legal issues because like the Philippines, they have the constitution, they have this uh, uh, mining law and other laws that says that uh, all the resources uh, of the continental shelf belongs to the Philippines. And, and also in China, we have uh, uh, well, those areas and the, the, uh, we, we have similar laws and mining laws that are saying that the, 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 the similar things. And also that about the tax and the revenues, we have the tax laws and everything. So uh, it's not about, it's not a political issue. I think the, uh, the, the most difficult part is the legal, legal part. 
Richard, you think this can ever be completed? <laughs> it wasn't point of view, or is it just, is it just, you know, people told me way back when, when I was in the State Department, that right. we couldn't establish diplomatic relations with China based on the structure that we had come up with. Well, turned out they were wrong. It was, it was the political will, the legal yeah. issues we yeah. could deal with when we had the political will. Richard? Yeah, I mean, Steve, I think it's really both. It's both legal and political. I mean, the Philippine constitution also is quite, you know, I mean, it, it treats the Philippines exclusive economic zone as almost like it's territorial water. So if you look at the national patrimony and economy provisions of the Philippine constitution, then you have the arbitration award, which, uh, you know, well, Philippines initiated, Philippines believes in that, and that arbitration award rejected the nine dash line. Guess what? The areas being negotiated, one of them, Reed Bank, falls within the nine dash line. So if you negotiate there and recognize China's sovereignty, you're, you're essentially going against the very arbitration you started and potentially violate your own constitution. Now, maybe if you're a dictator, you can pull that off. But Duterte is not a dictator. He may be an authoritarian populist, but he doesn't control the Philippines totally, especially on foreign policy issues. So yes, we can go on with negotiations. In fact, what's really fascinating is that in 2018, when President Xi Jinping visited, there was a kind of an expectation that something major is going to be signed. But there was a backlash. There was a backlash within the Philippine foreign ministry establishment, uh, within the public. No one wanted to sign anything that looks like the Philippines is giving away its sovereign claims in the area or rejecting. I mean, maybe Duterte is fine with that, but bureaucrats who are going to be there for the next 10, 20 years. They didn't want to face the music once Duterte is gone, you know? So, so this, is a, this is a minefield. This is a minefield. And by the way, late last year, something weird happened. The, uh, the Philippine Department of Energy which is kind of dominated by Duterte people, came up with a new uh, regulations that says the Philippines is willing to move forward unilaterally. Because the problem of the Philippines is that it's running out of the Malampaya plant, which is one of the few indigenous sources of natural gas. So there's kind of a time bomb there. But at the same time, the Philippines doesn't want to also be under Chinese uh, you know, pressure to sign something like that. So we're really stuck here. And much will really depend on who will be the next Filipino president, uh, for better or for worse. Let's not forget that back in the day under President Arroyo, right, she, 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 she negotiated joint maritime seismic undertaking with Vietnam and China. She signed many agreements. All of that was tossed out of the window, right, once Aquino came in. So something similar can happen if Duterte doesn't pull it off right now. This is the situation. I mean, maybe China can play certain uh, strategy with countries like Cambodia when you have a Hun Sen in charge. But Duterte is not Hun Sen and the Philippines is not Cambodia. And that really introduces a lot of uncertainty in the future of this. All I want to say is that that would have been a big thing because had the Philippines and China finalized something on the joint development agreement front, that would have been used as a template for the code of conduct negotiations and for the entire region. Because I think that was the game plan. Because let's not forget, the Philippines was also the China-ASEAN country coordinator just when we were starting negotiating this. So had we finalized that, that would have been the template for uh, entire ASEAN. So the stakes were really, really high as the title of our talk suggests, and yet it flopped. Yan Yan, go ahead. Yeah, I want to mention one point. The MOU between China and the Philippines actually is not an MOU on the joint development. It's an MOU on the cooperation of cooperation of oil and gas exploration. So I think that uh, that means two things. The first thing is that we can cooperate in the uh, disputed waters. And also the second thing is that we can cooperate in the undis 
disputed waters. Actually, we have different service contract plans between China and the Philippines. The um, contract service uh, 72 uh, is near the Reed Bank. I think that's difficult. And but I think that the other contract service uh, on the uh, on, on, on the, uh, the, the, the the 57, 57, I remember it was uh, north of Palawan. And that area was undisputed at all. And I think that uh, the China and the Philippines, we have already the uh, the uh, the CNOC and the uh, the Philippine energy company has already have a contract on that. So I think that maybe we can, you know, the two countries have been talking about this uh, cooperation in the undisputed waters, which will not violate the rules of law, a uh, law of, of, of the Philippines. So I think that's the MOU all about. It's not just joint development, but also cooperation in undisputed waters. Yeah. yeah Yan Yan is absolutely correct. I mean, I, in fact, my proposal was let's start with the low hanging fruit. Let's go with uh, service contracts in non disputed areas. Let's see where it goes. Let China show what a reliable partner it is. And then maybe let's see what we can do later on. But I think there were some people who are pushing to go all in, and I think that was a mistake. I think there was a negotiating strategy problem. Maybe we can ask my friend, our ambassador to China about this, but we're not hearing much details coming out. But I think that was a mistake. That I think some people like President Duterte thought we can go all in, but my suggestion is we go in a segmentalized, uh, compartmentalized sequencing approach. Yeah. It, it's not happening. I don't know why, but that's definitely an option. Thank you, Yan Yan, for pointing that out. And I think it's ironic that the Chinese party would be CNOOC that has been sanctioned by the US government. Uh, I think the chances, I, I have said this publicly, I think the chances of our allies joining us in those sanctions are zero. They're zero, they're not gonna do it. And the idea that we should punish American citizens uh, in these, these sanctions which have no material effect is bad policy. And I've been pretty specific in calling in calling them out. Uh, Richard, I can't let this program end without you giving you an opportunity very quickly, um, because then I want to get a bunch of other questions for Isaac and Yenyan. Talk about uh, a post-Duterte uh, South China Seas policy for the Philippines. Just what's it going to look like? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at my works back in 2015, especially 16, I, I more or less got 100% right. What's going to happen under Duterte? So many people are asking, what do you think will happen next? Now, with the passing of former President Aquino last week, you know, the opposition is hoping that now there'll be a groundswell of support, a kind of anti-Duterte coalition, just the same way that in 2019, the passing of his mother, Corazon Aquino, catapulted her son to the presidency and created an anti-China, more or less, administration. I have, you know, history may rhyme, definitely doesn't repeat, but maybe this time it will not rhyme. Uh, Marcus's and Duterte's are in very good position to become the next president. I'm talking about Sarah Duterte, the daughter of the president, and Bongbong Marcos, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. They're leading the surveys. They have massive resources. They're in a good position to become the next president. But this is Philippine politics, just like an American politics. It's, it's very unpredictable. And my, my content, centrist will are in a very good position to become the next president, right? And as far as centrist candidates are concerned, let me drop some names. Manny Pacquiao, he potentially could run for the presidency and he has the resources and the appeal, right? Uh, he's also from Mindanao. And now there's actually an open fight between Pacquiao and Duterte over, among others, the South China Sea issue. Pacquiao is openly telling Duterte to be tougher on China. That tells you something about the shifting sands here, right? I doubt we may move to the opposition, back to the Aquino days, but even the center is trying to adopt a more critical stance on China. 
uh, the, the current mayor of uh, Manila, Isco Moreno, is also a big, big contender for the presidency. He has also taken a much more nuanced position on the China position, right? So I think this is where the Philippines could go. I think Duterte has shown that the Philippines can leverage its alliance, can openly criticize U.S. and get away with it. But it also showed that the Duterte style of almost slavishly uh, kowtowing to China, it also doesn't work. I mean, zero big ticket infrastructure investment from China so far, not much concessions on the ground. It's, it's so zero. I believe reversion to the mean. Yes, I mean, there are like small time stuff, but as far as big billion dollar projects are concerned, as far as I can see, none happened, right? For a lot of reasons. I'm not going to blame China. Our bureaucracy is a mess too. But my contention is reversion to the mean could be uh, the, the what's going to happen in the future, which is neither a very US-aligned kind of approach we saw under Aquino, nor this kind of all-in for China and then flopping, right? We may see a much more calibrated and measured presidency who actually perhaps could pull off things that Duterte was not able to pull off. Whether this is Sara Duterte, whether this is Bongo Marcos, or a very centrist candidate, I see more or less that the direction for the Philippines. So it will not be a game changer, but I think a game correction. That's what we're going to see under the next Philippine president. Isaac, what happened? Uh, once upon a time, Obama met with uh, Xi, and they there seemed to be some understanding not to militarize the Spratlys. Was that what happened? Uh, well, I suppose I don't know exactly what uh, the the decision making process was, but in 2015 when they met, Xi made a statement as part of that saying that they wouldn't didn't intend to militarize the Spratly features. Important to note, it wasn't referring to the paracels, which, which are already much more significantly built up. Uh, and I think the Chinese explanation for it has been that they, they're necessary defensive measures. They still don't describe it as militarization, which I think is not a, not a, a fine parsing of the definition that is, that is widely accepted. These are very large facilities, you could fit Pearl Harbor inside the lagoon at Subi. Uh, they have not deployed, you know, warships there on a regular basis or, or bombers or fighters, but they're set up for exactly that. Um, as to why, why there was, I guess, a misunderstanding about what the meaning of Xi's uh, phrase was, I think that's, it would be speculative to say, but ultimately the Chinese interest in controlling that space has been continuous. I don't think that she intended to make any commitment that would restrain China in any way from, from using the South China Sea as, as China saw fit. And, and I imagine that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to make commitments in these types of circumstances, and I wouldn't expect many of them to be honored in the breach. Yan Yan, you have anything to add on that? Well, regarding this uh, military thing, I think that uh, what we're, what concerns me most is not the U.S. like fun ups and these regular uh, military exercises, but it's actually the uh, the increased frequency of U.S. Um, intelligence gathering activities in the South China Sea, as well as the uh, the United States gray zone operations in the South China Sea. Let me give you just one example. I, I see some uh, the news uh, of uh, the US civilian aircrafts uh, has been uh, masked as uh, 
Malaysia airplane uh, and trying to spy on China. And also the US has been sending more civilian um, um, civilian uh, uh, airplanes and, and vessels to come to the coast of uh, Taiwan Strait and also South China Sea to conduct these uh, intelligence gathering activities. I think these kind of uh, activities are, 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 are quite uh, worrisome to me. It seems that, that you're using different uh, uh, you know, tactics to, uh, to to conduct this kind of operations. And also the frequency has increased a lot. Like in May, uh, last May, well, the United States has conducted 35 uh, con reconnaissance operations in the South China Sea, but this year um, there are 72 uh, reconnaissance flights over the South China Sea. So uh, that's uh, what we Chinese think the militarization of the, of the South China Sea about. Um, that's that's one thing, and the other thing I wanted to talk about is just I saw the question in the uh, in the in the chat box regarding the title of this uh, of this dialogue about the, the the definition of the high seas. Well, it's it's uh, I think it's true that in the South China Sea we have no idea where the high sea is because it's you know you have to first define the territorial sea and the EEZ and well let what left behind is the uh, the the uh, high seas. So nobody knows where the high seas is. So that's the question about. I think that I do agree with the uh, with the, uh, the, the the question, and I think that. But uh, but uh, I don't think that will make much a difference of what we have been discussing about today. Yes. Just just on that just on that point of where the high seas are, I think this is another issue where the Philippines arbitration is likely to have a long lasting legacy. If you look at what the map looks like if you don't give a 200 nautical mile EEZ to any of the uh, Spratly features, which is what the, the ruling determined, um, then you do have, a, it's like a comma shape of high seas in the middle of the South China Sea, pretty much right behind my head. Um, and that's an interesting area with a lot of scope for cooperation. There you wash away all of the potential domestic jurisdictional issues, which, which I agree with my colleagues you know, it's a cart before the horse or a chicken before the egg sort of scenario, whether or not the legal restrictions got put in place because of those political determinations. But e either way, uh, it's, uh, it's, quite, it's quite a sticky problem. And I think that having high seas uh, opens up the scope, especially for fisheries cooperation, uh, but also for other economic cooperation and for exercises in a way of non-jurisdictional seas getting past some of these EEZ uh, military activities issues and potentially being a great source of confidence building. But again, as, as Yan Yan pointed out, China doesn't accept that definition. They do project 200 nautical mile EZs from the whole of the Spratleys with undeclared baselines. We don't know where that is, but you can basically any projection of it is going to eliminate any high seas whatsoever in the South China Sea. It's all, it's all going to be Chinese EEZ actually. There's not going to be much of an EEZ for any of the other states if you actually drew it out. Well, well, actually, it's not just an issue between China and the Philippines. If you look at the Spratlys, it, it, the, the waters and the features have been claimed by uh, four countries, at least, you know, China, the Philippines, Malaysia, and Vietnam. If you look at the West Capella incident last year, Vietnam's um, Coast Guard vessels was there too. It's not just between China and the Malaysia. Vietnam is not happy with what Malaysia is doing in that area as well. And also when Malaysia sends its oil exploration of ship to the Vanguard Bank, Vietnam is not happy about that too. 
so there are uh, disputes and the standoff between Malaysia and Vietnam over there. So uh, these are the claimed EEZs of the coastal states. So I, I still I, I insist that uh, um, even if you don't recognize China's claim in the South China Sea, the situation is still complicated. So we still don't know where the high seas is. But I do uh, agree with that. Uh, we can we can see those um, waters of uh, potential areas of cooperation, especially with the uh, resources. By the way, Isaac Maxpock asked, any chance the Senate will ratify the UNCLOS? Uh, Hope springs eternal. Uh, I think it's more likely in this administration than the last, but there's, the odds are stacked against it in a very packed legislative calendar. Uh, it only takes a handful of senators to keep it from going up for a vote. I think it takes a lot of political capital for the administration and for the for the uh, Democratic Party leadership to put it there. So I'm, I'm not holding my breath. I think that the one route to reframe the law of the sea issue as part of our relationship with China might be a, uh, a viable path from a messaging standpoint about why it's in the United States national interest to ratify the treaty. To my mind, it's a no brainer, but obviously there's a, there's a set of political uh, calculations there that are totally unrelated to the, to the uh, national security interest and entirely related to, to partisan politics. The, uh, we're out of time, but let me, let me just ask one final question. Isaac, you said the Biden policy is free, open, secure, and prosperous. Wait, said, did I write the four words down? Free, open, secure, prosperous, Indo-Pacific. Yeah, that's what Biden wrote in March, I believe. Doesn't everybody agree with that? Isn't that what China wants too? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, can you say that again? Free, Please. open, secure, and prosperous. Isn't that what the Philippines wants, China wants, the United States wants? Richard, yeah. you have any comments? Never listen to details, right? That's always the problem. L lawyers, Steve, you should know this. But but it it it. I know, but my point in asking the question is, of course, we want a free, open, secure, and prosperous. Everybody does. China has more going through the South China Sea than we do. They don't want ships stopped. I, I mean, it, it it's 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 a policy that until you bring it down to. You know, at, at 60,000 feet, sure, we all want it. At sea level, uh, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot. Of I think, Steve, I mean, let's not forget that, I mean, what's happening in South China is part and parcel of a bigger contestation here, which is the liberal international order in Asia, right? Uh, peace and prosperity on whose terms? That's the fundamental question that we have to always raise. And the South China dispute is very much the manifestation of that Yep. that macro geopolitical competition. I think this is the problem we have. On whose terms should we have peace and prosperity? Is this more a regional Chinese-driven uh, definition or is this the traditional post-World War II one that was more or less defined by the United States? And that mattered. Yen Yen, final word? Well, um... <laughs> Final words. Uh, I, I I hope that this year the South China Sea will be continue to be uh, generally stable, as Richard said. Will be Chinese scholars always said that uh, that so that I won't be uh, extremely busy. And I look forward to the future meetings of this both the COC multilateral level and the bilateral level meetings. Thank you, Isaac. Uh, I think my colleagues said it all. Uh, 
you know, I, I imagine this is not going to be a, a boring area moving forward. I think U.S. and Chinese interests in particular are, are continuing to grow more in conflict rather than less so, which is which is very worrisome. Uh, so I imagine Steve will be will be discussing this again uh, in not too long, and I uh, gr grimly look forward to it. Well, I didn't get to ask enough. Ask. I think we touched on some of the areas where we could cooperate, but if we had more time, I would have asked you all to kind of talk about areas in the South China Sea where, you know, ASEAN and China, Philippines and China, the United States and China could all uh, could all cooperate. But this flew by. I can't thank the three of you enough. It's the first time we've done this on a tripartite. Uh, tripartite basis and it seemed to work terrifically. So I'm sure we'll do it again. I thank the audience for joining us either early in the morning or late in the evening. And I thank Isaac, Yenyan and Richard for, for, uh, for joining us. It was a fabulous program. Thank you all so much. For more interviews, videos and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.